Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. This is God's word. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands upon them. You may be seated. pray that our hearts will be prepared to receive the Lord's word. Father, thank you again for this Lord's Day gathering. Such a privilege to join together. Lord, we have so much. So many who suffer in so many ways that uh, we'll never know. I'd like to pray for those who suffered this terrible chemical attack. We have no idea life like that is like. So may we be thankful, especially that we can meet freely like this. Help me to communicate your word clearly for your people to receive it wholeheartedly. In Christ's name. To whom the kingdom belongs. Now verses 13 through 16 here um, reveal to us the criterion for membership into the kingdom of God, that is the kingdom of heaven. Who should be allowed in? Who should be kept out? Now, most of you have probably experienced some connection to an institution or a club, fraternity, um, that had exclusive membership attached to it. You know, anything from a country club to a golf club, a tennis club, yacht club, <laughs> yacht club, uh, vacation membership clubs, private schools, you know, there's many institutions that have exclusive membership criterion for membership. They actually have committees who decide whether you measure up for acceptance into that institution or not. Uh, The disciples here um, seem to have their own idea about who was allowed in and who was to be kept out of the kingdom um, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hindering Parents from bringing their children to Jesus for a blessing. Now, this is similar to what took place in chapter 9. Remember when the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest? They were arguing about rank in the kingdom. 
And Jesus said, you want to be first in the kingdom? That's okay. Is there anything wrong with that? Anybody? Anybody? No. But then he went on to talk about being least and last. And he brought a child in the midst of the twelve in that house in Capernaum. He said, you want to be great? Serve the least of these. And he wasn't talking about children. He was talking about uh, um, a believer. Those who serve the least of these. The one talent Christian. Those who seem insignificant within the kingdom. How you serve one of these little ones is how you serve me. That's what greatness is. What does greatness look like? Well, culturally, greatness looks like, you know, the guy or the gal who who arrives in the limousine. The one who's uh, regularly featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. The strong, the wealthy, the the ambitious, um, entertainers, actors. Seriously. That's our culture. That's how we define greatness. Um, In our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., it displays greatness and what greatness looks like um, in people for whom statues are made. City of Philadelphia. I lived in Philadelphia for a short time. I think it was 34, 35 years ago. And uh, I would walk down Broad Street past uh, the Spectrum, Sports Arena Spectrum, right? Uh, and there, there was a, probably one of the largest statues in all of Philadelphia was, was that of a fictional character. Yeah, Rocky Balboa. <laughs> and now that statue is in front of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. <laughs> but we don't typically find statues um, of children, toddlers, or infants. Unless you're perhaps at Rady's Hospital or something. But Jesus, he, he turns the value standard of greatness on its head. And many times he uses children as the object lesson. Because greatness in the kingdom of God is all about need, not supply. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about trust and absolute dependence, not self-confidence. Not self-assurance. Children, um, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, pointed this out, uh, they occupied the last place of importance and prominence um, in Jewish culture. They were the bottom rung of society because they couldn't provide anything. Even though the Hebrew culture prized children, that is, in being able to bear children, that is, in being able to raise children, um, considered as they were gifts of the Lord, they were not commonly doted over in the first century. Our society is very different. You know, the old adage, um, children should be seen and not heard. 
uh, isn't too popular in our day. It was very popular when I was a child. We understood it. We had no problem with it. But, but today, sometimes our children are given so much attention that it reaches the point of idolizing them. You know, there, there's some parents that I see, their, their children dominate everything. Their calendars, their actions, their clocks. They run around time, town serving these little ones. It never stops. So all that to say, we, we tend to do just the opposite of what this um, Jewish society was doing as regards children. But still, even in that day, parents sought out respected rabbis to bless their children. There was a Jewish tradition of taking one's child to a rabbi for blessing, um, particularly on the Day of Atonement when these children... um, couldn't understand the way in which God was bringing his saving and pardoning blessing upon his people, they would take their little boy or their little girl to a rabbi to have him lay his hands upon their head and pray for them. Here, whether they realize it or not, this rabbi is no run-of-the-mill rabbi. These hands are sinless hands. The blessing from this man, he is the blesser. Most of them, they don't, I don't believe they know that at this point in time. Nevertheless, notice verse 13. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Oh, this, this is just another no-no. Children, notice, are being brought to Jesus. They're brought to Jesus with a purpose, that he might lay his hands on them, Matthew tells us, in order to pray for them. Notice, crowds are gathering to him. We looked at last week that the the, the Pharisees are dogging him. you got people dogging him. you got people gathering to him. But here, children are being brought to him. Brought to him. Children do not decide where they go. They're brought. The parents are seeking the touch of the master upon their children. You know, i got to say this. It is a delight to see you bringing your children to church. I, I see you. Carrying some of them. Leading some of them by the hand. Pushing them in a stroller. Bringing them into the presence of Christ, the church, the gathering of God's people. This is the most important thing we can do in this life for our children, is to bring them to Jesus, to train them up in Jesus, to lead them to Jesus, to train them to sit under the Word of God. You know, I have in my office and at home, a stack of, over the years, uh, many, many cards of encouragement from y'all. And I have in my desk drawer a few scathing letters. (laughs) Few, but they're there. I keep them as a reminder. But all of your encouraging words and notes are, are, are on the bottom of a pile of other encouraging words and and pictures 
from our children that I cherish. Cherish. This is the greatest thing we could ever do is to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6. This you do well. This is the most important thing that we can possibly do for them while they are with us in our homes is to raise them in the truth. Look, Getting you know clothes and shelter and, and food, that's important. But it's not the most important thing. This is. Formal education. That's good. That's important. But it's not the most important thing. Speaking with the men on Thursday night, you know, many parents, their whole focus is that their child is successful. And they have a, a radiant academic career. Mostly, I believe, for themselves and for their reputation. In eternity, there will be no SAT or ACT or IQ test there. It won't be there. The highest privilege in calling in life of any Christian mother is to bring them up in Christ at your knee. And the primary chief responsibility, it goes to that of Christian fathers. Amen, dads? Now, you can't save your kids. You can't redeem them. You can't regenerate them. But you can proclaim him. This is the most important thing we do. Bringing our children to Jesus. Leading them that way in the midst of all the obstacles of life. This is what it is to swim against the tide of culture. Many obstacles. Well, here on this day, unfortunately, one of the first obstacles of these parents happens to be the 12 disciples of Jesus. <laughs> Go figure. Here, they're, they're acting like intimidating bouncers. They're rebuking parents for bringing their children to Jesus, throwing their weight around, trying to block access to the master. See, these brothers do not yet realize that they are not guardians of God's grace. They are stewards of his grace. They will learn this. We're here because of that. Remember back in chapter 9, they assumed they could determine who uses Jesus' name, right? Remember that fella who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus? Remember they had failed to do that, the nine of them. They're scratching their head. They're probably jealous. And John is trying to stop him. Jesus says, don't do that. Do not do that. And here, they're, they're, they're trying to dictate um, who's permitted admission into the presence of Jesus Christ. They try to turn them away. Look, Jesus has already made it very clear. A person's attitude towards the least of these is your attitude towards me, says he. Verse 14, but, this is another bad but in the Bible, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. A very strongly expressed emotion. In other words, Jesus is visibly angry See, anger arises here that injustice is being done. 
This is horrendous. He was irate. Because the very character of the kingdom was being transgressed. The character of the kingdom of Jesus Christ was being transgressed by his own disciples. Now, we witnessed a similar emotion back in chapter 3, verse 5. On the Sabbath, he's in uh, the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand, and everyone's sitting there watching. Is he going to do it on the Sabbath? And it says in the scriptures that he looked at them with anger. Anger. How angry must he be when a baby's aborted? How angry must he be when a child is abused or neglected or cast away? How much angrier will he be at the great white throne judgment against the unrepentant of such crimes? Be assured of this. If any of those things are in your past, and you've come to Christ by repentance and faith, be certain that those crimes are under the blood of Christ. Be sure that you know that. Amen. Now, there is great irony irony here as regards uh, the indignation of Jesus in response to the disciples um, trying to keep children from Jesus. And and that irony comes um, in Matthew 21 on uh, what we know as Palm Sunday, Um, 21, I don't think I have this up there for you, but you can just listen. Chapter 15, uh, Jesus, this is the the triumphal entry. He comes into town. He rides in. He goes into the temple. He turns the place upside down for the second time. He does it at the outset of his ministry, and he does it at the conclusion of his ministry. And um, he's there, and we read, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought and so on. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. These children would have been boys uh, probably in the temple around the age of 12. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, yes, I do. But have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? You know what that's a picture of? It's this, even a focused infant to his mother's breast, that's focus. A hungry baby at his or her mother's breast turns its attention to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior. They know enough to do that. And they're indignant. Children shouting in the temple, Hosanna. So here, back to Jesus and the 12, he he gives a sharp rebuke to his disciples for getting in the way of these little ones. See, in the eyes and the thoughts and the imaginations and in the esteem of the disciples in in their position as one of the 12, they think that all the important work that he's doing is being interrupted. And Jesus basically is saying, this is my work. Now, this isn't all his work, beloved. Let's not bend the scriptures here, thinking that it's all about children. 
It's about children. It's not all about children. After all, the majority of his ministry was directed towards adults. But here we do see that this is the heart of God. This is what God is like. This is, this is what Jesus is like because Jesus is God. And he loves these children. He has time for small children. He has time for babies. Luke says that the children he was bringing, they were infants, which is very important. That we understand that as we proceed this morning. So having rebuked the parents of these children, Jesus rebukes them. So notice uh, he moves from indignation to, to that of making a clear declaration. Clear command, verse 14. And, and, and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belong, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. In other words, let these come and don't do this again to any others who are like this. Don't do it. He's saying, look, back off, hands off, do not be an obstacle, do not be a stumbling block. I think they forgot what Jesus taught in the last chapter about being a stumbling block to any young believer. It'd be better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were chucked over the side into the Sea of Galilee. It would be better for that than for you to commit this crime, right? Do not hinder. Not even an attitudinal hindrance. Now remember, beloved, this is apostate Judaism. This isn't a day of apostate Judaism where the Jews were convinced that you earned your way to heaven by doing good works. Children couldn't do that. Children couldn't perform any good works. And here Jesus says, for to such... That is, these little ones, to them belongs the kingdom. Now, now, that statement is read by some, probably most. It's read as though Jesus were making a comparison, that is, drawing a spiritual parallel, holding these children up as an example. That, that is, there's some characteristic, that, that is, that if that characteristic is present in your life about the king of the kingdom, Jesus, then the kingdom of God belongs to you. He does that in the next verse, but not this one. He does that in the next verse, but not this one. Notice, he's talking about a group of children, many of whom... Maybe all of whom, again, as Luke puts it, were infants. So what does he mean? First, let's look at what he does not mean. Okay, are you with me? Let's look at what he does not mean. Number one, this does not teach that babies are morally innocent, i.e. sinless. Just go to the crib if you have one at home and look in it. Or you, you, you can go to the nursery right now because my grandson's in there. My other grandson. Scripture's clear. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Everyone will die because everyone shares the same DNA as Adam. Right? 
David cried out that his sin was what he was. He was conceived in his mother's womb in sin. Psalm 58.3 says the wicked are estranged from the womb. They, they, they go astray from birth speaking lies. You see, sinfulness is not a condition that suddenly ignites once one chooses to do evil. Sinfulness is a condition all are born with and leads us to choose to do evil. So it doesn't mean they're sinless. We have that? Got that? Next, this is not, capital N-O-T, this is not a promise to the covenant community as a call for instant baptism. Some friends of mine view this text as a proof text for paedo-baptism, that is, bringing infants to be baptized. Not all of my other Reformed friends believe that, but many do. Growing up in Reformed Presbyterian Lutheran circles, as I did, it is taught by many from this text that children are part of the covenant community and therefore should be baptized. Their denominational standards teach that the visible church the visible church, those who gather together professing faith and trust in Jesus Christ, includes all those who do profess faith in Christ and their children. Therefore, as Jesus received these children for blessing, we too, they teach, should receive our children into covenant membership, receiving the sign and seal that they refer to as baptism. But regardless, beloved, of how well-intentioned our friends are who practice infant baptism and however sophisticated the rationale is to support it, and it's a very sophisticated argument. It's so sophisticated it's very confusing. The Bible simply does not authorize us to baptize infant children of believers. Amen? Word. Matter of fact, Charles Spurgeon preached a very famous sermon in 1864 on this text, and this is its title. Children brought to Christ and not to the font. This is his first point in the sermon. This is his first point. Listen. This text has not the shadow of the shade of the ghost of a connection with baptism. And indeed, there's not a drop of water in it. it. Look, if the Lord was ever going to teach infant baptism, this would have been the perfect place to do it, right here. But he doesn't. Okay, so it's not teaching that children are sinless. It's not teaching that infant children should be baptized. Nor is it teaching that infants or these young children are capable of exercising faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not teaching that. Now, let me say this. Obviously, unborn children can, in their mother's womb, be regenerated if God so chooses to regenerate them there. Word? Yes, he can. 
God the Holy Spirit can come and give them a heart of grace in dwelling them in the womb. Even John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. So, when they're old enough to comprehend the glorious gospel, to believe and embrace Jesus Christ, they will because he's made them, enabled them to believe. But this is not teaching that. It's not teaching that they're sinless. It's not teaching that they should be baptized. It's not teaching that they're capable of exercising saving faith. Now, with that said, I'm a word on evangelizing our own children, which is very important. It's very easy for a parent to manipulate their child to confess faith and trust in Jesus Christ because no doubt it makes you feel better, right? You just rush them and push them. We don't want to do that. Yet on the other hand, beloved, we, we never want to discourage any movement of their heart towards the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to encourage it. We want to encourage them to continue to pursue Jesus Christ when these little ones are old enough, stand on their own faith. They've been pressed by the world a little bit. They want to be baptized. We will gladly baptize them. Okay, now, although the primary lesson of this narrative is verse 15, where a comparison is made, we'll see that in a moment. The question, what is Jesus referring to here in verse 14? Notice, he's, taking, he's talking about a, a category of people. He's taking these little ones being brought to Jesus. They are a category of people. These children, he says, and all others who fit into this category of children, infants most likely, Okay, notice there's no conditions, there's no qualifications, there's no forewarnings, none of that is included, and it has to do with those who are part of the kingdom of God. Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. Those are synonymous terms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And they both say the same thing. It belongs to such as these. The kingdom of heaven, what is it? It's the sphere of salvation. It belongs to these kinds, babies, infants, little children. So the kingdom is the domain of salvation. They belong to it, Jesus says, and it belongs to them. He says nothing about the parents' faith. There's no covenant children language that's uttered here. There's nothing about circumcision, sign of the covenant under the Old Testament. There's nothing said about baptism. No, no ritual, no ceremony, no parental promise, no parental covenant, no christening. His words simply include all babies, they belong to the kingdom. They belong to the domain of God's salvation. The kingdom belongs to them and they belong to the kingdom. No suggestion of either faith or unbelief with the parents. So, seeing what this passage is not teaching, and again, we will see its primary lesson, I want to take some time to consider what this passage definitely allows. And a question that most people wonder about. In this day, 
And, and up until not too long ago, I'd say maybe 100 years ago, children often died as children. Infant mortality was huge, and no one is more vulnerable than a child, and no one knows that better than a parent, especially a mother. Mothers. So what happens to children who die in infancy? What happens to children who die in the womb? What happens to children who die as toddlers? Little ones who are not capable of responding to the outward call of the ministry of the word of God. What happens to them? Well, we'll say, well, they all go to heaven, but why? Don't just throw it out there. I know some pastors who say, well, you can't support from the Bible that babies go to heaven. Well, I would quibble with you. How do you minister to people who do lose little ones? You don't make it up. Have you searched the scriptures? What about those who are incapable of understanding their sin, a holy God, and and responding to the gospel? Are they immediately ushered in when they die to the presence of God according to his mercy and his grace? I believe they are. This is not a slam dunk um, argument for what happens to children when they die in infancy, infancy. But there are verses that hint at it very loudly. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Do I have it up there? Okay. Well, then I'm not going to turn my Bible. because. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So notice, they have no real knowledge of good and evil. Now, even a baby can exert it's sin nature, amen? My, my grandson has exerted his this past week in, 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 in throwing a fit so that my wife will pick him up. And, and then it, all of a sudden, it just miraculously stops. He just stops. He can exert the sin nature, but that's not the same as knowledgeable, willful sin in the same way we end up sinning. Amen? Look at Ezekiel 22. There's another hint. God says through the prophet to Israel who slaughtered their children to the false god of Molech, burning them in the fire. Ezekiel 16. Verse 20. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered whose children? My children. And delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? Jeremiah 19, verses 4 and 6. Because the people have the same situation, the slaughter of these babies. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of what? 
in a sense. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topheth or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, and that became Gehenna, the place where the garbage burned 24-7, and Jesus referred to as the place of everlasting fire. He would point to it as eternal hell, a garbage dump south of Jerusalem. And Topeth is the Hebrew word for drum. As historians tell us, they would beat the drum continually to drown out the cries and the shrieks of these babies as they were being burned to death. Jesus said, you're shedding the blood of innocence. He's not talking about covenant parents, that these are mine. Not faithful, believing parents. A parent's faith has no meaning. These are just children. 2 Samuel 12, you're all familiar with this. David sins with Bathsheba. They have a child. God strikes the child with an illness. David prays. David fasts. He intercedes on behalf of this baby. The baby dies. He gets, he sees and hears some scuffling in the background, and the baby's dead, and they're like, whoa. David gets up and bathes himself and cleans himself, and they're wondering, why isn't he not still praying? And he says, look, now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him. He will not return to me. So I think those verses allow for that. I think those verses allow for that. Think about Job in the midst of his uh, great suffering. Um, he, he curses the day of his death. I don't have this up there. You can just read, listen to this. He's cursing the days of, of his death, and he says some very interesting things here. Okay, recorded in the divinely inspired book of Job, the poetry of Job. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees ever receive me? Or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I have would lay down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Or why was I not hidden still, as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light, those who die in the womb, right? Uh, there, there where? The wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. Now, since I've used the word quibble twice, I'll use it a third time. If you want to quibble about that, say, ah, I think you're taking some liberty there. Let me ask you this. Where in the Bible is anyone sent to hell for anything other than actual, willful, sinful choices of unbelief or specific sins? Where? Find it, bring it. In Revelation, those that are cast into the lake of fire lists active, rebellious, unbelieving sins. No verse in the Bible even implies that those who have not actually, knowingly sinned against their creator will be in hell. Historically, we hear from the likes of John Calvin. You ever heard of him? Who said this, quote, 
I everywhere teach that no one can be justly condemned and perish except on account of actual sin, and to say that the countless mortals taken from life while yet infants are precipitated from their mother's arms into eternal death is a blasphemy to be universally detested, end quote. Another, uh, R.A. Webb, from his work, The Theology of Infant Salvation, came out in 1904, said this, If a dead infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be good reason for the the divine mind, the good reason of God, for the judgment because sin is a reality. Yep. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. And yes, God could make the child understand, oh, it's your sin nature, so... You're destroyed in hell. Of course he could. But under such circumstances, it would know suffering, but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. The very essence of the penalty would be absent, and justice would be disappointed, cheated of its validation. End quote. You with me? So the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the domain of salvation, perfect peace, the glorified presence of God belongs to such as these. Those who have no wherewithal, they have no possibility of earning anything, they have no ability to even exercise faith and no knowledge of what faith is. Therefore, infants, babies, little ones can only be saved through the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and regeneration of the Spirit by absolute, solitary, unmerited, unwilled, unconscious grace. These are mine, says the Lord. That is what I believe verse 14 means. Now, the main thrust of the Lord's teaching. This is his primary point in verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, like one of these, shall not inherit it. Okay, that is the characteristic of these little ones, even infants. There's something that is true about every genuine Christian. There's one major similarity that a Christian shares with babies or little ones like this. And that similarity, that resemblance, that likeness is not what some commentators suggest, by the way. Some commentators suggest that it's, oh, it's innocence. No, it's not. It's openness. No, it's not. It's sincerity, simplicity, a sense of wonder. Those all are subjective virtues. Okay, there is one objective virtue that a truly saved person shares with one of these little ones. And that is this. All of them share one thing, regardless of where they're born or to whom they are born, and that is they are all, every single one of them, utterly helpless. Helpless. They bring nothing. They've achieved nothing. They've earned on nothing, and they can contribute nothing. Everything they receive is soul, solitary grace on the, on the basis of sheer neediness. 
leave a child lie on this table, on this floor, in the most comfortable bed you want, and just leave here for the week. And the child will be dead when you get back. Because there's nothing that he or she can do. James Edward says this, quote, To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, and no claims. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. The first mark of spiritual blessing in Christ's kingdom. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come as beggars, who have a beggar spirit. That's how you inherit eternal life. No one inherits it in their own name. No one inherits inherits it by way of their own merit or their own reputation. That's the problem with adulthood. Okay, that's why children just say, oh, Jesus, I'm a sinner. As they get a little older, Jesus came and lived for me and died and rose again. And if I believe in him, I'll go to heaven. I believe that. That makes perfect sense. And if you're not regenerated, you will grow up and with increasing sin, actually think that, well, that seems pretty narrow. I think I can stand on my own. I'm a pretty good guy. You're a fool. You think you can stand on your own two feet before a holy God? You think you're self-sufficient? You think you've established your own identity before the living God of the universe? dead wrong. Children know for certain that they're not self-sufficient. They know how needy they are. When they, when they get a little older and have a bad dream, where do they run? Into your bed. Because they know you can help. They need you. They're needy. Unless you become like one of these who can do nothing, you'll never see the kingdom. Is it to surrender all claims of merit and self-worth as a beggar to cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a, a sinner? Like that. In Matthew 18, Jesus uses a child in a similar way. Verse 2, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus say to the greatest teacher of Israel in John chapter 3? Even as a great teacher of the law, look, Jesus says, I'm not impressed. Let me tell you, most assuredly, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom. In other words, God must do something to you. He must do something in you. You must be born again. You'll never perceive it, let alone enter it. Supernatural work of God. Okay, think about this. So far in Mark's gospel, we've been at this a while. Consider those who have come to Christ. What about the friends who who lowered their buddy down through the roof? They punched a hole through this thing. That means, you know, this had mud like 12 inches thick with thatch on top. They dig a hole through this thing. Jesus is teaching down below. It's packed. They can't get in there. They said, well, we know he can do it. Let's punch a hole through the roof and lower him down. Desperation. Need. Needy. 
the woman with a 12-year hemorrhage. She broke, beloved, ceremonial laws regarding ritual purity just to touch the hem of his garment. Realizing there's nothing she could do, but he could. The Syrophoenician woman, I know I'm not a Jew. I know I don't eat off the table, but Lord, what about the crumbs underneath the table that the little children drop? How about that? Jesus said, I haven't seen this kind of faith even in Israel. That's need. And that's to know you're needy. You have no status. You bring nothing into the kingdom. The only thing you contribute to your salvation, as I said before, is your sin. That's it. It's all grace. The man whose son suffered seizures from demon demon possession comes to the Lord. how How much faith did he have? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. He cried out. But Lord, I believe, help my my unbelief. Faith in Christ alone is not the amount of faith, but it's the substance of that faith. It's Christ alone. Verse 16. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Notice he shows affection for these little ones. He picks them up. He holds them, lays his hands, blesses them. That is, he prayed for them. What did he pray? I have no idea, but you can be sure it was answered. (laughs) You can be sure of that. Whatever it was, was according to the perfect will of God, and it was answered. I'd love to know. So this blessing, as I said earlier, this isn't the blessing of your ordinary run-of-the-mill rabbi. This is the one who blesses. This is the king of kings. This is the maker of heaven and earth who's condescended. And he's standing there in a human body. He's laying his hands on these children. And I can tell you this, beloved. Everyone who comes to Christ by faith is blessed like this. You're blessed with eternal life. Done. Christ alone. So our, our, our Lord's response indicates that children are, are anything but outsiders from the kingdom. That's very clear. He uses them once again as an object lesson, telling his followers, look, you must become like one of them. What do they contribute? Nothing. They're helpless. That's how we come. Now, while the world entrusts its kingdoms to the strong, the wealthy, the ambitious, and the proud. The kingdom of God, that is the kingdom of heaven, belongs to the weak and the humble who are spiritually needy and they know it. Do you know it? Do you know you're needy? I hope you do. And are ever needy. See, Christ's kingdom, you watch TV, you watch news, you listen to politics, you listen to all this stuff. Christ's kingdom does not compute with the world's seeming logical system. Seemingly logical. It's not logical. Why? Why doesn't it compute? Because his kingdom is not of what? It's not of this world. See, you're the fools. We're the fools that he's called to himself. Let me close with this. 1 Corinthians 1. 
Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, slash, sisters. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Notice not many. Some are. Not many. Not many were powerful. Some are. Not many. Um, Not many were of noble birth. Some are. Very few. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are, are, are not, to bring about, or to bring rather, to nothing things that are. So that, so that, no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Believers must be childlike in that they trust and they believe God without hesitation. Just like children with their parents. If they're that dependent, a, a baby knows they're dependent. And they cry for their mama. I love watching that. However, though we're to be childlike, may we not be childish. I already looked in the mirror before I looked at you all. Sometimes I'm so childish in a fun way. I'm very serious about serious things and not so serious about not so serious things. I think that we need to be like that. But when it comes to the things of God, may we not be childish, remaining elementary in our knowledge of the faith. The young and old alike need to be continually growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to be growing in doctrinal comprehension. So do you trust in Christ like this as a child, like a fully dependent infant? That's the question, that's the call, or do you feel he owes you something? Think about this. This text, and in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the next story in line to this is the story of the rich young ruler. You get that? You see this? Who had plenty of personal achievement, who was very religious, who had accumulated great wealth, which appeared to be appeared to be God's blessing in his life. After meeting with Jesus, was disheartened with what Jesus said, and the scripture says he went away sorrowful because he was anything but baby-like. Amen? Be a baby in this sense. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we don't have to strive, that we don't have to struggle in in, in any attempt to, to try to earn favor in your sight. It's all been done. It's all been accomplished through your conquering king, our Lord Jesus Christ. May anyone um, who's within earshot of this message who thinks they have anything in and of themselves to offer you or to possibly stand upon their own merit, may you bring them to their knees, pull the rug out from underneath them so that they will fall in utter humility 
to realize like an infant that they are absolutely needy and they need their mother so that they call out to you as their father. In the name above all names, Savior, your Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.